Some weeks ago, I finished writing a book on John Pugh. The name may not mean very much to you, but he was the founder of the forward movement in the Presbyterian Church of Wales. And at the age of 19, he was converted. At the age of 14, his family moved from Powys down to Tenby, <coughs> where his father was helping to build the railway between Pembroke Dock and Tenby. And John, the, the only son, was employed by his father. And though his parents were Christians and brought him up in the faith, John began to mix with the navvies or the laborers on the railway line and became very worldly and wandered far from the Lord, though he still went to church on a Sunday. And at the age of 19, <coughs> the rain was very heavy in Pembrokeshire. Come rain there sometimes. And they had about a two or three mile walk to their Presbyterian church. And so the parents said, we won't be walking to church today. And so John didn't mind, but his mother gave him the weekly Welsh language Presbyterian newsletter with a sermon in it. Nothing else to do, he read it. And the, the text he read about was here in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It was a brief, brief outline of a sermon that a minister in Anglesey had, had preached. Just the bare outline. But it was enough to bring John Pugh to conviction and to faith. And later that afternoon, in his own bedroom, he opened the scripture and he became overwhelmed by the glory of Christ. Convicted of sin. And he was given faith to, to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately the Lord met with him. He was overwhelmed by the love of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. He didn't tell his parents immediately. But the next day he went to work and his mates realized that he was different. He began preaching to them. Within a year or so, his burden to preach the gospel was so great that <coughs> the church decided that <coughs> he should train for the ministry. Instead of doing three years of training, he did two. <coughs> because he had such a burden to preach the gospel. And his first church was in Tredegar, but I won't give you the story. You can read about it in the future. And while I've preached through Revelation once or twice <coughs> over the years, it forced me to go back to these verses in Revelation chapter 1 some weeks ago. 
And the Bible is so precious, it's living, it's powerful. And however well we know the Bible, we always see new things or old truths become fresh, alive, relevant. They search you. They can overwhelm you. And when we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible preach, we, we must expect God to speak to us, to deal with us, to, to use the word. It's a living word. It's a powerful word. And it's a word that, that changes believers, that quickens us, that makes the Lord Jesus more real to us. And I want to urge you to, to expect God in the word and in preaching to speak to you, to deal with you. This isn't a dead book, it's the word of God. So the verses that I'm drawn to are found in verses 17 to 18 of Revelation 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. This was a real historical situation. 96 AD, thereabouts. The Apostle John was in his mid-90s. And he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos, just near the coast of Turkey. He'd been exiled there by the Roman authorities. Anyone, a criminal or a dangerous leader of a community, would be sent there, exiled there, if they were deemed to be dangerous and a threat to the Roman state. The Apostle John was the last of the apostles. And he was exiled to this small island of Patmos, smaller, much smaller than the island of Anglesey in North Wales. It was volcanic, lots of rocks there, stormy. And there with other prisoners, John was there. He had a burden for the Christian churches in many, many places. He must have struggled and must have been concerned for those churches. But one Sunday, we're told that in this scripture that he was in the, the Spirit in verse 10. It was the Lord's Day, Sunday. The Lord's Day is very special. When our children were small in Bangor, my wife created a, a, a very small two-line Welsh chorus we sang on a Saturday. Um, sounds better in Welsh, my seal and all. Sunday is coming, Sunday is coming. And we repeated it. We wanted to encourage a sense of excitement. Sunday. We're meeting Christian friends and their friends in the Sunday school, in the church, families. But we were learning about God in Christ. We were fellowshipping. People were coming to the home for a meal or for after service. 
fellowship. There's a sense of looking forward, excitement. I wonder if that was how the Apostle John felt. Perhaps as he was praying, as he recalling the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit enlivens him, quickens him. So on the Lord's day, he says, I was in the Spirit. It's a tragedy, I think, today that Saturday often is the climax of a week for, for many Christians. But Sunday is the big day. It's the feast day. It's when the Lord speaks to his people, when the Lord shows himself in the word to his people, when we fellowship together, when we see people converted and Christians being helped. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And not just in the spirit, but he heard a loud voice behind him. And he compares it to a trumpet. This might have reminded him of Moses, remember, at the Mount Sinai, when there was the Lord descended in fire on the mountain and there was smoke surrounding it. The whole mountain was in an earthquake. A blast of a trumpet was sounded, it became louder and louder. And then the Lord spoke and called Moses to go to the top of that mountain. So the, the Apostle John heard that voice and we're told that he turns round and looks at the person who is speaking. And we have a description of this in verses 12 onwards. The description is, is awesome. And we'll look at it in a moment. John, no doubt, is, is overwhelmed, and he will be in verses 17 and 18. He falls at the feet of the Lord Jesus as if he is dead. He's so glorious, so awesome, so inspiring. He could just fall to the ground. And yet, the Lord Jesus, as he speaks, introduces himself. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. I'm the Eternal One, the one that spans the centuries. This is repeated again in verse 17. And John is told to write down what he's seeing, what he's going to hear for the churches. And in verses which follow now, he's going to tell us what he saw as he looked on the Lord Jesus Christ. Very briefly and simply, I want you to notice three things. First of all, the awesome glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He also became man. He's the God-man. As God, he is awesome. As the God-man, he's also glorious. He's glorious in heaven, exalted. And we need to capture again today this, 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 this big picture of the beauty, the glory 
the power, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, first of all, sees seven golden lampstands that remind you of the vision that was given to Zechariah in chapter 4. The vision of a golden lampstand with a bowl on the top and the seven lamps with seven pipes of the Holy Spirit feeding the church. And the light of the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ shining in and through the church to the world by the Holy Spirit. And the light of Christ shines in the church by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of the world and his people. And then John sees not just the, the golden lampstands, but in the midst stands one like the Son of Man. The church is the center of all that God is doing in the world. Our news programs don't tell us hardly anything about the church except bad things. But the major work that God is doing in the world is through his church. And the church is full of light, the light of the gospel. Christ is present in his church and with his people. He's the Son of Man, taking us back to Daniel 7. Remember the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And the Son of Man comes and stands alongside the Father. He's given the kingdom. He's glorious. Our Lord alone uses that title in the Gospels. The Son of Man, the title describing his coming into the world, describing his sufferings, but also he used it to describe his coming in glory in the future. Glorious title. And then John sees something of the glory of Christ, the ankle-length robe with a golden sash, recalling the high priest dressed for his service, the great high priest, the high priest who would once a year go into the tabernacle, the temple, and then go into the very Holy of Holies and shed the blood on behalf of the people. And here the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, he will shed his own blood, he will die in our place. No other sacrifice will be needed. And then John tells us about his white hair, going back to Daniel chapter 7. His purity, his holiness. The world is so dirty, society is dirty, filthy. God and our Lord Jesus Christ are spotlessly clean. We have little idea of what holiness is in relation to God. We've never seen a perfect person. I haven't. The most godly Christian is imperfect. We're surrounded by unbelieving people. But God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, there isn't a speck of dirt or sin in them. Their nature reacts against sin. They love only what is pure. And they hate sin. 
And John sees the pure, holy character and nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his eyes are like a flaming fire, penetrating. There are one or two Christian leaders over the years. <clears throat> They've died now. But when I was with them, I often felt they were looking into me. Their eyes were penetrating, as if they knew all about me. They didn't. But this is what John is saying. His eyes are like a flaming fire, looking belong, below the surface. There's no hiding. There are no secrets with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows us all together. It's silly trying to fool him. You can't do it. We have to be real, honest, authentic. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Speaks of his power, the way in which at times he comes in judgment in society. And his voice as the sound of many waters. This would have been very real for John because on the Isle of Patmos in the storms and hurricanes, all the things that happened out there, he'd have heard the waves pounding on the rocks in the storms, noisy. And he likens the voice of the Lord Jesus to that sound of many waters. The times when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks so loudly, you, you have to hear. You cannot resist him. You cannot defeat him. And he it is who holds the seven stars of his right hand. Church leaders, his sharp two-edged sword, he fights his enemies with. And his countenance, says John, is like the sun shining in strength. Reminiscent, really, of Saul's conversion, the Damascus Road, remember? The Lord spoke to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the Lord asks who he is. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then the intense, unbearable light and awareness that Saul had of the glory of Christ he falls to the ground. All of us, unbelievers, unbelievers, one day will see Christ face to face. For unbelievers, it will be torment. It will be unbearable. For Christians, it's going to be glorious to see him, the one we love and trust, whom we've known in our lives. And this is the one who is the head of the church, the one we serve, the one who calls people into the kingdom, who calls ministers and preachers, who anoints them by the Spirit. He rules over the church by the word and by the Spirit. Christ is awesome. We need to ponder more his glory. Secondly, notice the reassurance that the Apostle John was given concerning the exalted Christ. 
it struck me quite powerfully some weeks ago that John knew these facts. He was a witness and accompanied our Lord in his ministry, witnessed the death of Christ, witnessed the resurrection. He saw the Lord Jesus ascend back to heaven. But he's being reminded of basics. This glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ, placed his right hand on John. What a moment that must have been. He, he was lying on the floor as if he was dead. He was terrified, overwhelmed. And our Lord says in verse 17, do not be afraid. What lovely words. Have you ever sensed on occasions the awesome presence of God? It can be frightening. Even Christians can tremble sometimes if God manifests his presence and his glory. I've known very few occasions. Sometimes in a meeting, in a minister's meeting, no one has been able to talk or to move. One Christian told me of a student conference in January 1966, a Sunday morning. The preacher had preached and the students went into prayer immediately. And what this Christian told us a few weeks ago, heaven came down. God was awesome. People were converted. Christians were repenting. It was fearful. God is living. He's powerful. He works. And yet here the, the Lord Jesus places his hands on John, giving him peace, reassurance, as if he's saying, I wonder if he's saying to John, look at me. Forget your sufferings, forget your exile, forget if he was working in a quarry, slave labor. Forget your problems. Look at me. Remember the message. Remember who is in charge of the church. We get bogged down by our problems, don't we? Circumstances. It's not easy sometimes. I love Psalm 103 where the psalmist reminds us that he knows our frame, remembers we are dust. We're frail. We can break easily. And, and here the Lord is reassuring John and helping him in this situation. But notice what the reassurance is. I'm the first and the last. I am reminding us of the name God has in Exodus and the way in which he answers the question of Moses, whom shall I say has sent me? And God tells him, well, I am that I am. 
or I will be what I will be. God is eternal. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. He's, he's glorious. He's committed to his people in covenant. I am, but I'm the first. I'm eternal. The creator who sustains the universe. Paul tells in Colossians, if the Lord withdraws his hand, his power, the, the, the whole universe would collapse. It's by him all things consist, the universe. I'm the first and the last. And I'm taking the world, but the church particularly, through the, the centuries. My purpose will not fail. There'll be no defeat. And all in the councils of the triune God, all that has been planned is going to be carried out by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when faced with Pharaoh, Moses could be confident most of the time. Pharaoh and his army and his idols and his soothsayers, they were no match for, for the eternal God. He would bring all things to successful completion. You have plans for evangelism, but be expectant. You, you are talking about the triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. A glorious message. The Lord can save. We can expect big, big, big things. I'm the first and the last. And one day he will return in glory, personally, visibly. Every eye will see him. And whether we're believers or unbelievers, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he'll wind up history, the final judgment, resurrection of the body, the new earth, the new heaven. It's coming. I'm the first and the last. And notice our Lord goes on to tell John, I'm he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Notice how the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is linked inseparably with his resurrection. They're inseparable. I couldn't help thinking recently that when our Lord says, I'm he who lives, how John must have known joy on this occasion. If you remember the narrative in John chapter 20, you know that Mary Magdalene spent some time getting spices ready to embalm the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in the tomb. She went to the sepulchre very early. It was dark. She found the stone rolled away. She didn't expect the Lord Jesus to be raised from the dead. She told the disciples, and they didn't believe, but Peter and John ran to the sepulchre to see. We're told by John that the Apostle John 
actually ran faster than Peter on that occasion. He was a sprinter. And they peeped into the sepulchre. Peter went inside. And then John. And then we're told in John 20, they saw and believed. And then later they saw the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. John knew that the Lord Jesus was alive. And here he is speaking to the Apostle John in exile, I'm alive. And then he says, I was dead. John was there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when our Lord Jesus was arrested, he was there. He followed the Lord Jesus Christ in those circumstances. He was with a crowd at the cross. He must have had many memories. The arrest by the Jewish police and the Roman soldiers, the trial by the Sanhedrin, the Pilate trying the Lord Jesus, hearing the crowd saying they wanted Barabbas released, not, not Jesus, seeing the crucifixion, the stripes on him and the crown on his head, carrying the cross to Calvary, seeing him nailed hands and feet to the cross. The taunts of people, you've saved others, yourself you cannot save. He would have heard the words of the Lord Jesus from the cross. One of them addressed to him to take care of Mary. He would have heard the Lord Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, they know what they do. They would have heard him say, I thirst under the intense heat of the sun. Or the dying thief repenting and our Lord assuring him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And when the darkness descends on Jerusalem in midday, you'd have heard the Lord Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A rare moment, a unique moment in the history of redemption. The Lord Jesus always in the bosom of the Father, equal. Their fellowship unbroken through eternity. And now on the cross, a curtain is drawn across. Instead of comforting his own son, the Father withdraws. must have been an awful moment. Sin being laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, our guilt, our punishment. And he drinks the cup. The cup of wrath, the cup that we deserve to drink. He's not spared any of it. He drinks the very dregs. And on the cross he suffered, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, forsaken. Then he cried out, gloriously, finished, 
One word in the original. Redemption accomplished. Sacrifice accepted. And he then gives himself up to death. John was a witness. He knew he died. Muslims tell us that Jesus did not die. Rubbish. The Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. And he was willing to die. But then he tells John, Behold, I'm alive, not just now, but I'm alive for forevermore. That's the message of the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ is as alive today as he has ever been. He's our Savior, our Lord. When Stephen was being martyred to death, remember that he saw the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a glorious sight. James was executed in Acts 12. Peter was crucified upside down. Probably Paul was executed. God's providence is sovereign. And yet he is alive, he's ruling, he's at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. There are encouraging reports from Ukraine, despite all the suffering that's going on there. The Lord is building a church. There are many, many requests for Bibles and New Testaments. People professing faith in Christ. The Lord is building his church in Muslim areas. If you know of Micah Drotter, you'll know of his television and radio broadcasting into North Africa and into France. And how many messages, texts are coming in and emails. How can I become a Christian? I'm the only one in this village that wants to become a Christian. The Lord is building his church. The Lord is alive. And he's alive forevermore. My time has gone, but I close on this note. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the, the key holder. Notice what our Lord says in verse 18. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Hades, the place of the departed. Death itself. The Lord has the key. I wonder if we believe it. Belshazzar was told by Daniel, under inspiration by God, that his very breath was in his hands, that all his ways belonged to God. We don't decide our future. 
Yes, we, we've, we've got the agency of, of free will, as it's called. It's influenced by sin. We imagine we are free. But sin affects and controls unbelievers. But our life, the length of it, and what we do with it, is under God's sovereign will. Some of you, I was going to say older ones, perhaps we're all old here, you may remember a Christian in Bethlehem. They were living in Blangwindi at the time. And he had what appeared to be a serious heart attack one evening. And so his wife phoned me. And so I, I went across to Blangwindi. And uh, he told me, I'm dying. I'm dying. Remember his words. The Lord has the key. He can take me when he wants. I'm not afraid. Isn't that lovely? He had peace. I'm going to be with the Lord Jesus. I won't be in church on Sunday, he said. I'll be in glory. He has the key. And if you're a Christian, you need not be afraid. Death is the entrance to glory that we see Christ. And he will give us grace in that time, but he has the key. I've noticed over recent weeks how many celebrities and famous people, some of them young, have, have died. Some because of their own fault, in one sense. But death casts its shadow over all our lives, over society. There were philosophers in the 50s and 60s who were so depressed by the presence of death. They said that life is meaningless. And some of them committed suicide. But there is a purpose in life. And there's life in life. The Lord Jesus can give us eternal life, spiritual life. We can know him. It's appointed to us once to die. And then the judgment. He's got the keys of death and of Hades. In my note, I, I meant to run you through Revelation to show how that happened, but my time is gone. And you see the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 5, who's going to open, take the scroll and open the seals. And there is God the Father. And John sees the vision, he weeps. And he's told not to cry. Then he's told that there's the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then he sees a lamb who's been slain and who comes forward, takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father. He's exalted, describing his ascension. He's got all power in heaven and on earth, and he's going to open the seals throughout history. 
and accomplish God's purposes. He's in charge. I have the keys. He has the keys here in Peniel, in your life, in this locality, in climate change, in some of the terrible things happening in our society. He has the keys. And we must trust him. And if you're not yet a Christian, I urge you to come to, to this wonderful person, to trust him, receive him. He offers you mercy, grace, forgiveness, eternal life, and the privilege of knowing him. I started by referring to John Pugh and many thousands of people were converted through his ministry. And one person described his preaching in this way. His arm around Calvary as he preached and one arm around his hearers because he loved them so much. He longed for them to come to Christ and to know Calvary. But the arms of Christ are being extended to you to come Taste his grace. Know his life. Know security and salvation in him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these wonderful words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we feel we've hardly done justice to them, but by the Holy Spirit, Lord, make them real to us. Make yourself real to each one of us that we may know the glory but also the love and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And Lord, I ask you, particularly in these coming weeks, to save people and to build your church and to glorify your name through Jesus Christ. Amen.